Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Out of the gates and ready to go. OutKick 360 is underway from 6th and Peabody. The Monday edition is here and a lot to discuss. LSU and Georgia will play in Atlanta for the SEC championship game. Plenty of results across college football. The Pac-12, some teams fell. Meanwhile, TCU continues to get it done. And so did the Indianapolis Colts yesterday with Jeff Saturday. And the game of the year between the Vikings and the Bills. We will discuss all of it over the next three hours. That and much more. Frank Isola will join us at the top of hour number two. We'll talk about the craziness with the Nets and more. Chad Withrow, I'm Jonathan Hutton. Chad, a, uh, it's going to be a fast-paced show. We'll have more to get to tomorrow. There's going to be not a lot of time to breathe in today's show, and I'm a little bit breathless when I looked up at the screen today when we opened, and for the first time I realized that Hutton and I are basically wearing the same shirt today. So if Chutton was oh, confusing wow. before, it's really confusing today. The only difference it does is look that way on camera. mine is blue and a darker blue pattern, and yours is blue <laughs> and green. But from this distance... It's almost like an optical illusion that I am merely a beardless Hutton. That's all that I am on this show today. Hutton, big weekend of college football, big weekend of NFL. I've talked about how the NFL has lacked an entertainment value. All of that entertainment value was there in that Vikings-Bills game. But I also have to mention and give a shout-out to my daughter, Everly Withrow, for scoring her first basket ever. On Saturday nice. in the basketball yes. game that I helped coach. You guys have been practicing a lot. Coach so I'm K, glad this Coach Kitchen does a great early. job with the girls. We won what, game two or game three? Game two. We won yeah. 18 to four. So we are now 2-0 and on the season. And uh, Evie knocked in her first basket. And it was quite the moment. Didn't know how I'd feel when it happened. But when she knocked it in, uh, it, was, it was quite invigorating. And she was almost embarrassed at how excited she was. Oh. She kind of ran back down the court, and you could see it in her face, like she didn't want to smile too big. Did they? Uh, but it was it was you a call fun time moment. out for the the lap around oh, the court. I, and- no, you know me. I'm like, <laughs> get back, get back. I mean, immediately there's no time to celebrate. I'm like, back on D, back on defense. The first of go. many. The first of many. Yeah, back on defense is what I'm yelling after she hits it. But it was there was a, a jump in the air and applause at the moment it happened. Also had a very nice assist. Uh, to one of our better, one of nice. our players had ten points, and Evie assisted her once or twice. And for six and seven year old basketball, it was as pretty of an assist as you're going nice to see. Dish. Where she actually like lobbed it into her in the post, and she went up and scored it. It was nice, a little alley oop for that age group. But I, I had to give that shout out. But please, oh, please, yeah, no. en- I mean, enough enough about me. But had to bring that a up moment. that a, a second generation Withrow also wearing the number three, like her dad, put one in the basket. Do you on remember Saturday. your first basket? As a kid? No. I don't. I'm sitting here thinking about this. I played uh, a, a, a small rec league, I believe. Uh, I don't know what league it was. Uh, YMCA, I don't know. Uh, the Wildcats okay. were, was my first team. Um, soccer, I played soccer for Super Mario Brothers. So that was my first team. 
and then it was basketball. But Super I don't remember. Mario Brothers Super was your Mario soccer Brothers. team. Everyone awesome. had a different video game name. See, we're all. Uh, I, I my daughter plays in the same league I grew up in, and uh, it's all NBA names. So it's always been that way. So even if you're now, there was one year where you stayed with your elementary school, and there's probably seven or eight elementary schools that play in this system. And we were, when I was a kid, the Gladeville Celtics. And Gladeville was the Gators, but we were green and white. So they give you a corresponding color to match the team. So the Celtics, we were the green and white Celtics. My daughter plays for a school that's like dark blue and gold, and they're the Hawks. So I think they just kind of ran out of colors with that, but she plays on the basically the Atlanta Hawks. But she is. I like that a lot better than like our our deal was you played in in a league and then you were sponsored by a business. So like you could be sponsored by anything from like Arby's to the funeral home in my yes. hometown, right? And I mean, or you know, the plumbing or whatever. Uh, the local dump <laughs> could sponsor. Were you. were kids, <laughs> were kids dying to be sponsored by the funeral home? Oh, well done, yes. well done. Yeah. No, your your status. I'll be here all week. There was a status to it whenever you were drafted. It was like, who, what team are you on? You know, and sometimes you were, you know, there was a a, a local car dealership that was very. You know, you wanted to play for that group. They always won. And then there was... Uh, Chico's you know, Bell Bonds yeah, from th- Bad a, News Bears. You yeah. want to have that? Then sponsor? there's a Bell Bondsman. You're like, oh, this maybe not so good. Yeah, I started playing at seven, I think. My, my daughters started at six. So it's six and seven is the league she's in. I feel like we started seven, eight. And then it went nine, ten, and up from there. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember starting to play at seven. I don't even know if I scored that year. I, I assume I did. But I have no recollection of... The first basket I actually made. Hit us up at Outkick360 on socials is where you can follow us. You can stream the show live on YouTube, uh, among other places, Outkick.com today as well. And of course, listening on this great radio partner with us across the Outkick network, the Minnesota Vikings are for real. They have an 8-1 record. And while you can look at their record and be very picky about how they're going about things, and they win close football games. Last year, they were not winning. And we've stressed this since last year about that team. Yesterday's win and the manner that they came back to win, down 17 points in the third quarter, and Dalvin Cook hits that 81-yard touchdown run, and it's a back-and-forth quarterback sneak on the goal line where Buffalo can just run out the clock. There's a fumble. You never see that. And then to get the touchdown, to have... Josh Allen drive back down the field to get the field goal and tie it. And then to go to overtime and Allen throws another interception in the red zone. What a finish for Kirk Cousins for this offense. What a, I mean, on top of all that, you have the catch from Justin Jefferson, which we're going to get into later. We're going to spend a whole segment on him. Chad, this was game of the year because of the small moments that led to the victory in overtime where you're looking at this going, okay, this is the everything's coming together moment for a Minnesota team that has a lot of questions and they've always found answers. And yesterday they answered the biggest call against who many believe to be the best team in the league. And the drama started the week leading up to the game where you didn't know if Josh Allen was going to play or not. He gives it a go. Um, The two interceptions by Patrick Peterson – the last one in the end zone to ice the game. I mean, there were so many dramatic moments in that game. You mentioned the fumble also. That on fourth and 18, you've got Kirk Cousins looking at Justin Jefferson and says, if things go awry, I may just throw it up to you. 
on this play, and he does that and has the catch of the last decade, maybe, not just of the year. Uh, incredible game. It's 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 a game the NFL badly needed. I wish it was in more of a primetime window mm-hmm. where everyone would have been watching that one. But man, oh man, what a terrific effort from both teams. And it's always unfortunate when you have a game that's that well played with that many memorable moments. And the biggest moment of the game was a fumbled exchange. One of the easiest things to do in all of football. And you've got a veteran center and Mitch Morse and a veteran now quarterback and Josh Allen. They fumbled the exchange. And it leads to that. But that's what got us to overtime and those well, other moments. It, it was great. But not even that. What got to overtime was because the Vikings took the lead there. What got to overtime was the missed extra point and then the drive to go get a field goal and tie it. Like the ability by both teams, and this is what I'd stressed up uh, uh, weeks now on certain teams not being able to go get points when they've got to go get points and win a game. Both of those, that's what made the game great. Both of those teams are capable of throwing the ball up and you have the players, you have the horses to drive down the field no matter the, no matter the time on the clock and go get points. And credit Kirk Cousins because he's, in, he's included in this now too. There are certain quarterbacks that can now drive you down the field. He did that yesterday in some mega moments for that team. And Josh Allen does it on the routine, even though he's turned it over six times in his last three games, I believe, or four games, and he's thrown four red zone picks in his last, what, three or four games now, too. Point being, to get just to get to overtime, they still had to answer the fumble touchdown for Minnesota, did that, and then we're within scoring distance again and threw the interception in the end zone. I mean, just a roller coaster game. Tony on our YouTube chat, you can hit us up there. You can hit us up on Twitter at Outkick360. Keep the interaction coming. We'll read some of your responses. Tony says the Vikes could go 16 and 1, and I still won't trust Kirk Cousins in a tough spot in the playoffs. Dude is just meh. Um, uh, not this year. I am believing more and more in Kirk Cousins and this Vikings team. Now, fair enough. You know, go get to a yeah. Super Bowl, and we yeah. think differently of Kirk Cousins. And there's no way to, to do that in, until you do it. But I, I watch this team, and I don't know what else more you want them to prove in terms of regular season to give an indicator as to what they could do in the playoffs. It's been really good. He has a touchdown pass in 39 consecutive games. I mean, he's, he's helping his team. He's... He's allowing the playmakers. And, and the big difference is sometimes it just takes the right head coach and play caller. And he was playing for a coach in Minnesota in Zimmer, who's a very good coach, but a defensive-minded one at that, where the focus was on, oh, look at this great Minnesota defense. And the focus is on the run game through Dalvin Cook. And now O'Connell comes in, and it's a pass first. You've got a, a, a true, legitimate megastar in Justin Jefferson. Um who you acquired because you traded Stephon Diggs to Buffalo. Both of those guys are legit. I mean, they're just now they've added TJ Hawkinson to the mix. They have Zadarius Smith, who's playing well defensively. We know their secondary can get the football back. It, this, is a, this is a very good Minnesota team. And unlike a lot of divisions, there is a margin for error with them. Despite Green Bay winning, there's a margin for error with, with them because they are 
head and shoulders above the rest of the NFC North right now. I totally agree. Um, Jeff Saturday, can we get to this? Yes. Amazing. Every NFL analyst who had a big problem with this and wants to act like you are a thoracic surgeon if you're an NFL head coach <laughs> owes this man an apology. He right. made you look foolish for having this take. I don't care if it's one game. A guy came off the street as an analyst, never being a coach, even an assistant in college or your precious NFL, came to the sideline and won a game with a terrible team. Granted, they played a terrible team in the Raiders, but they went on the road and won, and you all told us this wasn't possible because you had to grind, you had to churn butter in the factories of the NFL for years and years if you were ever going to have success as a head coach. That was proven wrong on Sunday. I am here for the Jeff Saturday celebration. I am thankful for him. I think this is great for the sport, and anyone who has a big issue with it, um, you owe him an apology, and you you owe this situation an apology. Tony Dungy was great last night uh, on Football Night in America, talking about it, and he you know he knows Jeff Saturday as well as anyone. Yeah, and his biggest thing was he's going to come in and he's going to give them a different look. And oh, by the way, he's going to start Matt Ryan. He said that was the, one of the biggest parts of it was you know the whole weird thing with with Ellinger and and what happened with him and Matt Ryan's now benched for the rest of the season. But he came in and did the better thing, which was to start Matt Ryan. It helped in this game, Hutton. I say some of this tongue-in-cheek, but Bill Cowher yesterday, um, Joe Thomas last week. I mean, I get that you hold that position in high regard. And it's very time-consuming, and it takes a lot of work, and not everyone can do it. It's not the highest calling in the world. People who are successful and smart people can step into these jobs and do the job. If they're not Nathaniel Hackett, then they can hack it in the NFL. And that's Jeff Saturday. He's a smart dude. He knows the game. He was in a locker room for a long time. I don't know that he's going to be a great head coach. I do know this. He's 1-0. He is 1-0 as the head coach. And Josh McDaniels, Hutton, boy, oh, boy. Things are looking well, bad for him in Vegas. I, I think he's, he's part of the example to use, though, because... I do think being a head coach in the NFL is far different than head coach at any level of football because there is, you know, Josh McDaniels is hired and sought after for the last decade since he's been with Brady Plus in New England because of his offensive knowledge, his play calling abilities. And many times you get behind, you know, the, the, the desk, so to speak, and you're in charge of all that. You're just not a good head coach, you're a very good coordinator. That's what Josh McDaniels is. Jeff Saturday is a leader. He galvanized that locker room. And the reason they won, to me, is more about the coaching staff that's left over from a Frank Reich regime that needed a boost, needed a kick. And they, they got it. The, the players, yes. But the coaching staff, too. Uh, Parks Frazier calling that game for yeah. the first time. He had been there for five years. He's the example that Bill Cowher's talking about but they're overlooking because they're looking at the interim head coach and not Gus Bradley, not John Fox, not Parks Frazier, and the list goes on and on. Cato June is on this staff. They're, I thought Kevin Mawai is on this staff. I thought the, the coaching staff did a tremendous job for Indianapolis, galvanizing that locker room. And I think Saturday played his hand perfectly, which is 
Does he want to be a head coach? Yes. But he wants to be the head coach of the Colts. And, you know, that was part of Cowher's point was, well, you know, he, he had opportunities and didn't want to be an O-line coach. I think he genuinely cares about the organization. And I do think you can tell when someone's being honest and genuine with you. And in this case, that was a very genuine response last week and post-game from Jeff Saturday, who said, look, our intention on Monday or Tuesday, whatever day it was when the press conference took place, when we told you guys who's going to be the quarterback, I hadn't seen Matt Ryan throw the football. And it was Thursday's practice where he thought that Matt Ryan was to a point where it was, he told, he told Matt, hey, come back and do it again tomorrow. And he thought that the practice elements of what, not just what Matt Ryan did, but he even comp- complimented the team. He's like, Friday's practice was popping. Now, Friday's practices are generally relaxed compared to a Wednesday or Thursday game plan install. But I think that speaks volumes from a guy who came in and is just trying to get the energy going back. And I think the team knew, too, with Ryan taking the, the first team reps, there's, a, there's an energy level to it. He, but the, I think here's the key to what Saturday did and why the coaches are all on board. Because that, that was question two. Is, is Saturday going to have the coaching staff that was passed over do their job? And credit them. I mean, they should be professional and do their job. Yeah. They did. And in this case, to, for an example, Saturday said, uh, post-game yesterday, hey, Friday I kind of knew I'm going to start him. But I went to the staff Friday night and I just got the temperature of the room. Like, hey, I got the feeling that Matt Ryan's the guy for this, for this Sunday. Is there, tell me what's happened to this point that doesn't allow us to say that. And it was more of a group decision, quote-unquote, even though he admitted post-game. He's like, yeah, I was going to make the call. We were going to start him. I, was, I knew what I was going to do. But he put it back in the, on the table. And I, I think that the business-like approach and just the dumb it down, we're going to run the football, which they did well. We're going to make plays. We're going to put the, put the ball in the hands of our playmakers. Jonathan Taylor rewarded them. Yes, game I mean, it was just football and giving it to him. Sometimes it just takes someone to just galvanize and just steady the ship. And no, I, I can't sit here and say, like, here's the path and direction of the Indianapolis Colts today. It's no different than a week ago. But the difference is you do feel like it's a locker room that's at least pulling in the same direction and a, a building that is it, to some degree. It's one win, but it's, a, it, it's also one terrible loss for the Las Vegas Raiders. Derek Carr's post-game reaction, in comparison, tells you that there are players behind the scenes there that are not pulling in the same direction. And it all came from a question and his answer regarding whether or not he and Josh McDaniels were on the same page. And he got very emotional and stopped himself. I think a reporter in the room thought he was done, tried to move on, and he said, no, 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 I'm gonna, I want to answer this. And it said it pisses him off that there are so many people behind the scenes that grind and do things just to fall asleep at night, that do things to take care of their pain, that come to work, and the result is this. And then he pointed to, it also pisses me off that there are people in this room back here, he's pointing to the locker room behind him, that don't have that same sentiment as some of us in the locker room. That's a spiral. And... That's not a good sign for the first-year coach in Vegas, Josh McDaniels, who hasn't won a game that he's led by 17 points. He's lost three of those. 
and yesterday lost to Jeff Saturday, who was analyzing his game in Bristol, Connecticut the week prior. It's, it's and crazy. He, and he had the tweet about the Raiders not being any good also that people were pulling up as he got the head coaching That's job right, with yeah. Indy. It's not good for Josh McDaniels. He may be another one-and-done. Uh, there may be two one-and-dones in the same division with him and Nathaniel Hackett. We'll talk about Titans over Broncos at some point as well. Uh, Jeff Saturday, it was pitch perfect in his post-game presser. His interview with Peter King also I read through. He had a chance to... Yeah, well, he was throw, throwing that softball about what do you say to Joe Thomas and Bill Cower and those that say it's it's embarrassing and it's a disgrace that you've been hired over someone else. And he took the high road. He said, I respect those guys. I appreciate their opinion. I still don't know that I'm going to be great at this. But he goes, Hutton, to your point, he reflects it back on that staff yeah. and says, I've got men in that locker room who were very professional. They were great to work with this week. I was in awe of watching them work and the machine it took to get this done this week. That is how you win people over. That's how you get people on your side. Whatever he has done with that locker room has given a little pep in the step of the Colts players. Also, they needed a new direction. They needed someone new talking to them, clearly. It's a fun story now to see what happens. They may not win another game. And ultimately, that's probably what's best for their organization because they need a quarterback. And they need to draft as high as possible. But it's appointment television now. It was appointment television yesterday when they beat the Raiders. It is appointment television moving forward to see what Jeff Saturday can do with this team the rest of the way. Well, and then they get Philadelphia coming up. They've got Philadelphia at home. That's next. Philadelphia plays tonight for Monday Night Football. Uh, and then Pittsburgh on Monday night. So you're going the following week, the Monday after Thanksgiving. So we will see the, the national storyline play out on national TV. Um you know the the Philadelphia game, of course. Oh, a, if they a, a get, one o'clock if, if they get Philly their first L of the season, can you imagine if Jeff no, Saturday's I, the guy to do that? I can't. I can't, I can't imagine, imagine it. it because I can't imagine it. I also was having a hard time, even though I was talking talking it up on Friday, imagining the Packers beating the Cowboys, well, and that's exactly what happened. We did. We, that's a tease, Hutton. We, that's what we call it we'll in, the, in the biz. A tease for later because we we also. We recommended staying away from this because Vegas knew something based on that spread. Vegas knows. It's, it's nuts how accurate they are where you've got a team that's very good coming off a bye and a Packers team that have lost five straight. And, and lost the spread's only to the five Lions and a half. the week before. And the spread's only five and a half. Hit us up with your thoughts at Outkick360 coming up. College football and the shakeup within the college football playoff. We'll get the rankings tomorrow night, but we'll try to look ahead and give you the results of the Pac-12, the SEC, and what TCU continues to do. That's next on OutKick 360. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Coming up in about 30 minutes, Frank Isola will join us. We'll talk about the craziness with the Brooklyn Nets. There's plenty to discuss there. 
Outkick 360 rolls on across the Outkick network. Sixth and Peabody, our location with Yeehaw Beer and Old Smoky Moonshine. Chad, is the biggest surprise from the college football weekend, is it TCU winning or the fact that we saw two fall in the Pac-12? I'm going to go with uh, the Oregon loss at home to Washington, which was more shocking to me, just from a Vegas perspective, just solely from the numbers perspective. Okay. Oregon was a 13.5-point home favorite and lost outright to Washington. TCU was a 7-point underdog at Texas. Now, the way that game went was shocking, that it was scoreless right up until halftime. And they, and there were no points that Quinn Ewers couldn't do anything, that it was all defense throughout the game in such a low-scoring affair. That TCU-Texas game threw me off with the way the game went. I thought Oregon-Washington looked more like the game I thought we were going to get with the top passing offense in the, in the, in the Pac-12 yes. going against the top overall offense, the Pac-12, and Bo Nix versus Michael Penix Jr. You have to say that very slowly when you're in broadcasting. But those two quarterbacks going head-to-head, I thought, was fun to watch. I don't know that I come out of that TCU-Texas game thinking that was a particularly pleasant game to the eyes to watch. But it was a huge win well, for TCU and sort of a prove-it moment for them. Hey, Vegas thinks you're going to lose. I was picking Texas to win and TCU to get their first loss. They've got all these close Big 12 wins throughout the year. And instead, they go to Austin, college game days there, uh, packed stadium, night game, and they get it done with defense. Didn't expect that. Well, you, and then you have the interception at the one in the Washington-Oregon game. Here's, here's the big takeaway for me with TCU. They had, in their wins, in their unbeaten streak here, they'd scored at least 34 points in all of those games. And I'm thinking, okay, what's the record for Texas whenever, with Sarkeesian when they allow more than 30? It's like two and nine. So I thought that was kind of the, the, high, the, the high water mark for Texas would have been you know 24 to 30 points. Can the defense hold TCU down? They did. And I, I, that, to me, is why I'm surprised TCU won not that they beat Texas, but the way that game went favored Texas. And they're the seven-point favorite, but TCU still won that game. I, last week at this time, I would have told you, I think TCU's dropping a game. They continue to answer the bell time and time again. And at some point, personally, I've got to wake up and acknowledge the fact that they're good. Like, it's not some fluke even though I look at the Big 12 and I think, nah, this doesn't size up to me the way the SEC or the Big 10 does. But here's the thing. The Pac-12 is the second most deepest conference in college football right now. Look at the games. Look at the results. I can name like one through six. Who's the fourth best team in the Big 10 right now? Is it Illinois? It's... I mean, yeah. is, is it Iowa? I, right. but I, <laughs> That's the joke of it, right? I mean, it's a team that can't score a touchdown I, I, offensively. I see these games, and I'm I, Ohio State, Michigan, yes. Penn State, yes. After that, I mean, I, I, I guess it's Illinois. But that's not good, <laughs> at least to me. And I know their defense is legit, but Chad, that I, I'm acknowledging TCU today, and I'm sitting here going, the Pac-12, even though I saw them lose two of their – good teams that were vying to jump Tennessee or whoever's going to be fifth to get in the playoff at the end of the season. And USC, I guess, still could. As we look at the, the Week 12 AP Top 25, I see a, a conference that, yeah, they're losing USC and UCLA. 
But there's been some good football played on the West Coast. And I think we saw it on full display as Washington went in and beat Oregon on their home turf. So let's look at the teams outside the top four just just briefly, right? Tennessee's got the highest, every type of percentage tracker you can look at of the teams outside the top four, they have the highest percentage of being in the playoff with their remaining schedule, with what they've already done. LSU is going to be an interesting case if they can beat Georgia in the SEC championship. I don't think they can, but if they do that, there's going to be an argument there for LSU, even over Tennessee, even though Tennessee won in Baton Rouge by 27 points. USC is the ultimate problem for everyone that wants to get in the college football playoff. Because if they went out, that would include wins over, this is the remaining schedule, wins over UCLA this weekend, who's only got two losses, a win over Notre Dame, who's played ACC giant killer already. Right. They have given Clemson and North Carolina their only losses. Keep that in mind. They could play giant killer again. And then they're going to have a Pac-12 championship game likely against Oregon. If they win those three games and are a one-loss Pac-12 champion, I think they're probably in. I do too. And at it, that point. So then it, if it's, you're... It's because of teams one through six. Yeah, if you're Tennessee or LSU, if they win the SEC title, you got to really hope for a lopsided outcome in Ohio State, Michigan, and TCU to lose one. And then it could be a Final Four of Georgia, Big Ten champion, winner of George, uh, Ohio State, Michigan, and then it could be Tennessee or LSU and USC. If they went out, I yeah. could, I could see that being a likely scenario. But two teams, no one's talking about Hutton right now, are at nine and thirteen in the ACC. What does a one-loss ACC champion do for the college football playoff committee? I don't think much if you compare it to a one-loss USC in the Pac-12. Right? If we're looking at comparisons, well, I'm, I'm basically I don't think of... they really stack up. And that's what the committee, or that's what the AP is telling us right now. We'll find out with the college football playoff committee tomorrow night, but they're telling us those teams are behind USC right now. Yeah, and Clemson, so Clemson dropped to nine uh, behind Alabama in last week's college football playoff rankings. So I'm, I'm judging the ACC to what you're asking. I'm basing that on what they've told us in their two rankings so far and, and how they value the SEC and the Pac-12 because... What there was a jumble, they, they were jumbled up there at 11, 12, at Oregon, Utah, uh, Washington. There were several teams there. I think they value top to bottom, well, top to middle, the Pac 12 more than the ACC. And so, therefore, in that scenario, I think USC gets in. I don't think you can make the argument for Clemson over a one loss Tennessee. I don't either. But, uh, but even as a conference champion, even I know as that's, an ACC champion. Yeah. I know that's crazy, but I. I, I'm just looking at the teams that they include in their top 25, and I, I can tell you who they value. They, they value the SEC, and they value the Pac-12. From a conference perspective, the most likely scenario right now is one Big Ten, two SEC, and then pick Pac-12 or Big 12. That is your college football playoff. Yeah. If, if I had to put a ton of money down right now, I'm going to take my mortgage payment and put it on a conference alignment in the college football playoff. It is two SEC teams, one Big Ten team, and then pick between the Pac-12 and the Big 12. Whichever one has, if it's TCU with no losses, it's obviously them. But even if it's a one-loss Pac-12 or Big 12 champion, I still think one loss for TCU probably eliminates them. 
And you're you're very clearly to me one more USC loss away from completely eliminating the Pac-12. Yes, all of the Pac-12 from the discussion. But I but I'm willing to eliminate all of the other one or two loss teams compared to a one loss SEC team that does not play for an SEC championship. I, I realize we're in the we're in the uh, the heart of the Southeastern Conference where we sit within the Outkick Studios here at Sixth and Peabody. But Chad, the resume. They have to value that. And I think the better football has been played on the West Coast and the SEC so far. So TCU, just uh, I'm going to give just one example. We're not going to go through every scenario here. TCU goes to Baylor. Baylor just got destroyed um, by K-State this yeah. weekend, 31-3, to which surprised me. So TCU, that's, that's going to be tricky, but a game they should win. They go to Baylor. They host Iowa State to close out the season, and then they have a Big 12 championship likely against K-State, and that would be a rematch. Um, if they go 2-1 and one, but win against K-State and, and win the, the Big 12 championship, how does that compare to a one-loss North Carolina or Clemson? I'm glad you mentioned Carolina because we do need to speak their name. Yes. Because they continue to win. And they won on the road at Wake Forest, which is not – it's not easy to go and win there within the last four years. Like 19 and three or something is their home schedule recently um, until this past Saturday. And the past couple of games have been played in the, the over-under has been like 99. And I know the over-under this week was like 80. And it was low scoring considered. It was 36-34. Um, but what, just in t- 77 points in the game... You know, the, the total was 77 points and you had the game at halftime where it looked like two teams may combine for 24. It was a complete 180 on what we're used to seeing from them. Well, we got to start talking about UNC and Clemson. Well, so, I so, mean, that, th- those are two but, that to keep an eye on for the college football playoffs. So but, is it bad that I'm thinking here like, okay, on all the scenarios, I'm not personally considering the ACC. You're going to need to if everyone's got one loss. But they're. I'm but, not considering the ACC if TCU goes unbeaten. But there's no. But, but if there's a one loss why, Big Twelve champion TCU. Well, this is your example versus though. Clemson or North Carolina with one loss. Okay. There is a debate to have between those two. Okay, but I I don't understand how and Tennessee. Let's say if they have one loss. They they it's a TV show. I, I get it. But the the rankings. Uh, the one thing to pay attention to is they're just giving you the crystal ball. The, you're seeing inside the committee's room on how they view the team that particular week. That's what's very intriguing. It's not like, oh, you need to make up this ground or that ground. And things teams are going to play each other. But chat, it's awfully hard for me to see and see Tennessee at five and Carolina at ten, and think that the resume is going to improve that much to where three weeks from now we're talking about Carolina at four and Tennessee at five. That's what I'm saying. Same thing for Clemson. They lose and they fall to nine behind a two-loss Alabama. So it would all come down to you know, yes, right now they're too far away. But I don't know how you they're change get there, the narrative that much on a it, on a you on change a resume. the narrative by beating another top ten team, which they would do on a neutral field in Clemson. So I'm just talking specifically about North Carolina. Well, do you think another top ten win would give them enough to jump a Tennessee? That's a pretty dramatic jump right now. That's right. But that's what it would take. 
Right. And it still would not be as good of a win as but, Tennessee's best win. But within that, which right now is at LSU. It's not just jumping Tennessee. Like to me, like so Ohio State or Michigan will lose. How far do they fall? If uh, it's if it's Michigan, if, if you keep specifically, going, they they need to be completely out of consideration. But they based on who they've played. Okay. But hypothetically, if it's Ohio State, like there's no way to me that you're you're going to have the ACC champ jump Ohio State, Tennessee, whatever narrative you want to come up with there. There there has to be a little bit more chaos for that to happen, in my opinion. I agree. I, I, I'm just putting that out there to put in the back of everyone's minds about these one-loss teams. If there is a one-loss ACC champion and North Carolina Clemson play, you get that bonus top 10 borderline win. If they both right. enter an ACC championship with one loss, right? So that's one. That, that's already locked up, too. It's going to be Clemson, North Carolina in the ACC championship game. Quickly, also, on the flip side of this top 25, a team that you will not see appear in it, A&M is an absolute mess under Jimbo Fisher. And, I mean, I, I, all year, I have this is, team is going to be 4-8. and eight. 24-7 sports does a composite of the most talented rosters in college football. The top three are Georgia, Alabama, and Texas A&M. One is not like the other in terms of what's happening with that program. There is if a, it is true that Moose Muhammad was benched because he dared to wear sleeves, that's a big problem. That is a huge, huge problem that Jimbo Fisher has within that program. we got to get our guy Billy Lucci back on again. Um, I feel like that that buyout is huge, but I also think the pockets of oil men in Texas that support A&M and Aggie football are very deep, and I think we are reaching the point of no return where this may actually happen. So his buyout is what it is, but you're right. It's just a different world in College Station. And I, I don't know where you point the, to hope, honestly. Other than, well, maybe we can keep all these guys here, but it's it's well, more than that. It would be because these guys the hope are, would be an offensive coordinator. These guys are part of the culture problem. They have got attitude issues on that team. They've got this is a systemic problem at Texas A and M, and you can't snap your fingers and say, "Well, we got all these four and five star guys." They're part of the problem. When they had dudes supposedly smoking weed before the game, three of them were five and four star guys in this talented freshman class. Here's the stat I've been looking it's, for. Texas A&M. huge, huge issues in College Station. They are the f- first college football program ever to follow a number one national recruiting class with a losing season. Think about that. They're preseason sixth in the country, but, too. But this, not this even year. number one. They are the best. They just had the best recruiting class in the history of recruiting. In the history of Shannon Terry. Right? Like, yeah. They had the best. The godfather. And they're the first program to have a losing season. Jimbo Fisher, his current buyout, $85.95 million is the buyout. Here's the other thing, too. Let's say they're going to have guys leave, but if they want to keep this group together as much as possible, these guys came for money. I mean, let's call it what it is. You know, Nick Saban's not lying about it. Jimbo Fisher can say whatever he wants. In large part, they outbid other programs for them. Yep. You think those same boosters that help pay these guys – and, and gave money to a collective to help them are going to want to then come back and re-up to keep these guys after this season? Think uh, about that no. sales pitch. 
I'm going to go back to this big money guy and say, hey, we need another two mil to help keep this class together because they all want to leave after our four and eight season. Yeah, but those boosters will then pony up and get, you know, they'll get the guy within the conference, within the same conference to transfer to them well, and here's, pay them. No, but here's, and then, then there's more chaos. I, I disagree because here's where those boosters are going to put their money towards Jimbo Fisher's buyout. Unless he if, convinces them on If Jimbo Fisher came to me and said, we need $2 million to keep our recruiting class together, I would say I will give my $2 million to fire you. That's where my money's going. Because if all those guys put in a mill to fire him, they're getting that buyout money quickly and he's gone. They, that cannot be the ask right now from Jimbo Fisher. Especially after he had his whole high-minded, holier-than-thou rant about them well, just working harder than everyone in recruiting. Well, that's, and that's how they magically out-recruited but it, Alabama. But it goes back to the whole setup of the season that you've correctly pointed out. is When is he going to hand over and concede that his way and his offense is not the way? And it's just... Let's just start at quarterback. He was known for being the quarterback guy. And recently, the quarterback's just in flux. There's too many question marks with all of that. Um, and way too much talent around him. Way too much. Hit us up with your thoughts. It's a mess. And, and by the way, we'll, we'll hit back on this and we'll tie it into LSU. Uh, that's coming up later in the show. In about 15 minutes, Frank Isola will join us when we come back. The catch, not just of the season, one of the greatest catches we've ever witnessed as football fans happened yesterday. On fourth down, when the Vikings needed it, they threw it up to the guy with the selection for trading Stephon Diggs. The Vikings went to Justin Jefferson, and he came down with an incredible catch. Chad and I will compare it to some of the best catches we've ever seen. That's next on Outkick 360. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Frank Isola will join us in roughly 10 minutes. Sirius XM NBA host and... ESPN contributor, looking forward to that. Plus, we'll recap Week 10 across the NFL. That's in 30 minutes. Chad, a part of this, and um, what was a crazy week, is the catch by Justin Jefferson. And it's rare that a single play that is that great is overshadowed by the game. But I do think that has happened with how the game played out after that with the Vikings pulling out the win in overtime. We, we must discuss this one-handed, falling backwards into coverage catch um, that we have a, a, a photo of. But one-handed, with Cam Lewis coming over the top here, with two hands on the ball, and with the leverage. I think that's the key for me. Lewis has the leverage to pull this ball in. And for a, just a split, a half second, he does. And then Jefferson comes down with it on 4th and 18 to keep the drive alive and keep the Vikings alive in this game in their comeback. This is unbelievable. And, the, it, and I, I, 
I thought we would get tired of seeing it. I haven't seen it enough. The most likely scenario on that play is clearly an interception. Yes. The second most likely is the ball's just broken up because you got a hand in the middle of two hands over the ball, and he's trying yes. to come down with it. So the ball's just incomplete. The reception by Justin Jefferson is so unlikely. I mean, if you did all the studies of physics and man and laws of gravity and everything, the percentage chance of that happening is so minute, it blows my mind that a man can have a lever of a hand and arm like that (laughs) and rip the ball from another professional athlete that's got two hands on it and put it perfectly into their torso. Yep. As they're falling to the ground and come up with the catch, uh, was it Joe Davis, I think, was on the call of that game for Fox, maybe? Sounds uh, right. He was so quick to know what happened on that. Watching it, when you go back and watch the actual live call, I'm thinking it would have taken me a second to grasp that he had the ball and it was a, a reception. From a Because it set. looked chaotic yeah. when he hit the ground and then he's rolling over with the ball. I'm thinking, he's got the ball? I mean, I mean it, he was quick to diagnose what had happened. Two-minute drill. They're, they're down in this game. Fourth and 18, one timeout left. Cousins goes to his guy, right? And this, he comes down with it. Skill set-wise, it's one of the best catches we've ever seen. And I, there's some recency bias here where, oh, it's the best catch ever. I don't know. I just know we won't see anything like it again this season. And it came from a player that's about to take over the league as the best dude. And it came on a day where, on the opposite sideline, is the player that was traded to get the pick where they selected Justin Jefferson, Minnesota at 8-1. Frank Isola joins us to kick off hour number two. Then we'll react to all of the NFL Week 10 finals on OutKick 360.